Well, as John has already said, we are starting a new series in the book of Malachi this morning. Uh, Malachi, if you don't you're not very familiar with it. It's the final book in the Old Testament. So if you open your Bibles to the book of Matthew and then just hang a left, there's Malachi. Malachi is a prophetic book, meaning it's a, it's a book where God is speaking to his people through Malachi. Uh, Malachi is a bit unique in that it, it takes place after Israel's exile in Babylon. So, if you remember your Old Testament history, um, Israel, God's people, they uh, disobeyed the Lord. And as a result of God's discipline to them, he sent them into exile in Babylon. And so, uh, roughly a hundred plus years later, um, Persia came and they defeated Babylon. And around 539 BC, uh, they issued a decree that actually all the Jewish exiles, you can return home. And so they did just that. They praised God. And in 515, they rebuilt the temple there in Jerusalem as God promised they would. God had saved a remnant of them. And so at this point in their history, there's about... uh, 1,500 or so Jews living back in Jerusalem, in their homeland, God's city, God's temple is rebuilt. Uh, We should expect them to be really grateful, to be worshiping God, to be desiring him, obeying his law. He's brought them back out of exile. But sadly, over time, the people's hearts have grown cold. They began to ignore God, to not desire him. And so God began to discipline them, to wake them up. And eventually, out of concern for them, he sends Malachi to call them back into a relationship with himself. And so with that bit of context, let's go ahead and hear our reading for this morning as Suki comes up to read for us. Morning, church. You can refer to the passage in your bulletin. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Eda may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Our next passage is Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are, like con we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very well, thank you, Suki. So I wonder if you've been in a relationship where someone has claimed that they love you, but then they treated you in a way that made you doubt their love. Uh, just this past week, I was taking my kids out on a bike ride. Uh, just as we were going out the door, one of them uh, wanted to change their shoes into flip-flops, kind of at the last minute. And of course I said, uh, well, no, if we're riding our bikes, you need your actual shoes. You know, flip-flops are going to be no good. Let's go outside. Well, of course, he was not happy with my response. He refused to go outside at all, at which point I said, Hey, buddy, I, I love you, and I don't want your feet to get hurt on this bike. Let's go. He looked straight at me, and he said these words, You don't love me. You don't. For him, me refusing to allow him to wear the shoes that he wanted disproved my claim to actually love him. You know, if you loved me, you'd let me do this. Or consider one pastor who described his relationship with his own father uh, in this way. He says, my dad wasn't around much. He didn't go with us on holidays. He seldom took us on day trips. And really, the only way he showed us he loved us was providing financially. He occasionally would say he loved his family, but very rarely demonstrated that claim in action. When he left near my 14th birthday, it made it clear that my doubt of his love was well-founded. Well, this series in Malachi is titled Big Questions About God. And today's question is one many of us will have asked or wondered before. Maybe you are even asking this question today, this morning. Does God really love us? Well, what we'll see in our text is that Israel, God's chosen people, are seriously doubting God's love. They've grown apathetic towards him. They aren't worshiping him as they should. 
If you've been anywhere near Christians or churches before, uh, you'll have heard people tell you, you know, God loves you. This is one of the first things you hear if you're around Christians. Even last week, over on Sharp Island in Sai Kung, I saw someone drew in the sand the words, God loves you. You know, what an amazing claim that is. But for many of us, the question is, is it true? Is it just sentimentality, wishful thinking? How do we know? Well, God will not leave this question unanswered, as we'll see in our passage. So if you have your handout, you'll see, uh, we'll go through the passage first. Look at God's love doubted, followed by two ways that God's love is demonstrated. And so first, uh, God's love doubted. Look Look with me at verse 1 and 2. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? So you'll notice there's this conversation going on between God and his people. Uh, This is a literary device that Malachi is going to use for his, kind of his whole book, where God will make this claim, and then Israel will ask a question about about God's claim, and God will then respond to them. I think what it functions to do is to expose Israel's kind of sinful attitudes so that they can see them clearly and then turn from them and repent and get back into right relationship with the Lord. And so how does God begin there? Well, in verse 1, I have loved you, says the Lord. So he doesn't start in right with his criticism or correction, but with a statement of love. That's where it all flows from. Uh, If you notice there, the word Lord is kind of in uh, capital letters. Uh, That's the kind of Bible editor's way of saying that this is the Hebrew name for the Lord, Yahweh. Uh, It's his personal, his covenant name. And so we could read this as something like, I have loved you, says the covenant God. And God is not speaking here generally about love. So he's not saying, I kind, of, I kind of generally love you. I really like you guys. What he has in mind is his covenant love. His, it's less of a word of affection and more like an unwavering commitment. I am committed to you, says the Lord. Uh, this, God's covenant love is referred to kind of constantly throughout the Old Testament. So if, you, if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 9, for instance, um, here, listen to what the Lord says to Israel. Uh, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery." From the power of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Uh, All Israelites would have learned the Hebrew scriptures uh, from a young age. They would have known passages like this. It should be no surprise to them that the Lord loves them. 
He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He provided for them constantly, fed them with manna in the wilderness, gave them land, gave them his very presence. This is the way they should think about God. He has done nothing but loved them. And so what what do we expect the people to say in response? Yes, Lord, thank you for your steadfast love. We trust you. Uh, We repent of our cold hearts towards you. Instead, we see there in verse 2, But you ask, how have you loved us? Their answer is full of doubt, complaint, uh, accusatory even. How have you loved us? How have you loved me? What have you done for me? Why are they reacting this way? What produces this kind of sinful, distrusting attitude? Well, things were not going well for the Israelites in this time in their history. Even though they were back from exile, which was a great thing, they were struggling as a nation. They were being persecuted by unbelieving neighbors surrounding them. Uh, They were suffering economically. We'll see later in chapter 3 that actually God had cursed their crops as an act of discipline uh, in response to their disobedience. But not only that, if we look at the larger context, uh, none of God's promises of peace, of a a great city, of a new temple with God's presence, uh, none of these were being fulfilled in their time. It appeared that God was not making good on his promises. And so they were looking at their circumstances and saying, Lord, give me a break. How have you loved us? Of course, our circumstances here will look different of that from the Israelites. But when we're going through difficulty in our own lives, God seems to be silent towards us. Can't we ask the very same question? In times that we feel that we can't square God's claim of love with what's happening in our lives, God, how can you love me when there's so much pain in my life? How can you love me when everyone else around me seems to be getting what they want, but not me? How can you love me when this desire and prayer has gone unmet for so long? And because of this, we, we doubt. You know, if you've truly loved me, Lord, you would do this. You would fill in the blank. God loves me? That's absurd. Well, the reality of the Christian life is that we walk by faith and not by sight. We won't always understand or know what God is doing. We won't always see why things happen to us. And because of this, a doubt is a reality that many of us will face in this broken world. Israel experienced it here, and so will we. I think what matters, though, is what we do then with those doubts. So I'd encourage you, uh, if this is you this morning, to search your own heart. Uh, see what it is that makes your heart doubt God. And then press into that. Talk to a trusted brother or sister about that. It's not something to feel shame about. It's something to press into, to be honest with. 
Doubts like this shouldn't be faced alone. Uh, So members of Ambassador, you've promised to care for each other, to bear each other's burdens, and what great burden doubt can be. If you know someone who's going through a season of doubting God's love, uh, stick with them. Don't make them feel shame about that. Instead, be there to remind them that we can trust God even when we can't see the end of the story. To walk by faith and not by sight. To remember that he is good and that we can depend on him even when we can't see what he's doing. Well, the good news of Malachi's audience and for us is that God is not silent. He responds to their doubts by reminding them of who he is and who they are. And so, point two, God's love demonstrated in covenant. So look with me there at verse three. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So God's response is a little bit like a history lesson. I think it's a little little bit of a strange response on first glance. What is the Lord saying here? Well, we find the details of these characters, Jacob and Esau, in Genesis 25. Uh, Listen to what God says to uh, their mother when these twin brothers are born. So in Genesis 25-23, we read of their birth. The Lord said to her, their mother, uh, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So at this point in time, God was going to choose uh, one child to continue the line of the promise. So to continue the, the covenant that God had made with Abraham to bless him, to make him into a great nation and to bless nations through them. And so, uh, in Malachi, then, God is appealing to his choosing of Jacob as the child who would carry on God's covenant rather than his older brother Esau. And not just them, but actually Jacob here kind of represents Israel as a whole. Uh, And Esau would represent Edom as a whole. And so God is saying, hey, Israel, remember this. I chose you. I chose you as my covenant people. I think it's important to note that the words love and hate here aren't emotional words, or it's not like God is expressing affection for one and not the other. Uh, They're words meaning a kind of choice. So what it could be read read as is more like, I have chosen Jacob, but Esau I have passed over. What does this all mean then? Well, I think the point is this. Because I chose you, Israel, to be my people, you can know beyond a doubt that I'm committed to my covenant with you. I was faithful to Jacob. I was faithful even when you turned away from me. And therefore, even when your circumstances seem so bad, even when it seems like I've been silent, I am committed to you fiercely. 
Why? Because God is a covenant-keeping God. He would have to stop being God to stop keeping his covenant. I once heard a speaker say that he um, used to ask his wife in his old age, Honey, do you still love me? And her reply would always be this, Well, I'm still here, aren't I? I think that's a bit like God's response here, right? You want proof of my love? Well, I'm still here, aren't I? I'm still willing to draw you back in relationship to me. So God choosing some to give his grace to and make as his people is uh, this kind of choosing element is sometimes called the doctrine of election. Uh, Election wasn't just what God did for his people in Israel, uh, but what God always does with his people. Uh, This is what even New Testament authors like Paul teach uh, over and over again about God's people. And so Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus, uh, right at the beginning of the letter, he reminds them of this. There in verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Paul's saying, if you are a Christian here today, uh, God chose you to be his child, adopted through Christ, freely given before the creation of the world itself. Salvation in Christ is God's work in you, simply because he loves you. I think one application for us then is the same as it is for Israel. If God chose us, If we are in God's family, if we're believing in Christ and living for him, then he's committed to love us forever, even when we can't see it, even when our circumstances seem to show otherwise. And so, Christian, God chose you before you were born simply because it pleased him. You sitting there in your chair right now, this morning, Going through what you're going through, God chose you. Think about that for a moment. If God chose you then, he will not unchoose you now. He would have to stop being God to do so. Now, we need to say, I think, at this time, that Christians can have a hard time sometimes with the doctrine of election. Uh, We may have many questions like, why does God elect some and not others? How is election fair? Uh, Does election, doesn't it eliminate our free will? Well, we won't have time to address all of these right now, and I'm happy to talk more after the service if you do have some of these questions. But fortunately for us, Paul himself addresses some of these questions in his letter to the Romans. So if we look then at Romans Uh, Chapter 9, in verse 14, Paul says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or effort, but on God who has mercy. So while election is a great mystery, I think, in many respects, I think one thing we must do is acknowledge that God simply is God and we are not. And because he's God, he has the right and the freedom to do as he pleases. But then at the same time, it's helpful to remember that the purpose of election as put forth in the Bible is to move God's people to a greater love for him, to greater worship of him, who would freely set his affection on undeserving sinners. So I think with all that in mind, then, there are two ways here that election actually can warm our hearts towards God. And the first is this. The reason God chose his people was simply love and not because they were special, unique, or more lovely than others. This is Paul's point in Romans 9, uh, just in the verses before the verse we just saw. And actually, he refers to our passage in Malachi as well, there in verse 11. He says, Yet before the twins were born, Jacob and Esau, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It was before they had done any good or bad. It was while they were still in the womb. It doesn't depend on human desire or effort, but entirely on what comes most naturally to God, extending mercy to sinners. Uh, If you've ever used a dating app, or maybe you've searched uh, on an apartment searching website, uh, that is not like what God's election is. It's not as if God looked at the people in the world and he swiped through some profiles until he found, you know, the most attractive, the most lovely, the perfect match. People who are really impressive. So instead of Israel asking, how have you loved us? What they should be asking is, why have you loved us? Who are we that the God of the universe should look kindly on us and make us your people? If you're a Christian here today, God chose you regardless of how put together or not your life is, regardless of your failures and your shortcomings, regardless even of your doubts. And then the second way I think election warms our hearts towards God is to see how undeserving of his mercy we really are. Uh, One thing I think we're meant to see in Malachi here is a contrast between those he chooses to save with his mercy and those God justly punishes for their sin. I think that's the point here in verse 4 and 5. So in verse 4 he says, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders 
of Israel. So I mentioned previously the Edomites were uh, the descendants of Esau. So they were kind of the brother nation to Israel. Uh, But instead of kind of loving the Israelites, they often hated them and they hated their God. So when Babylon came and took the Israelites into captivity, the Edomites not only did nothing to kind of help them, they even assisted the Babylonians. They would, they would raid the dead bodies of the Israelites to loot and to plunder what they could. These were wicked, wicked things. As a result, the Lord says justice will be done. Edom's judgment was to be permanent, a people always under his wrath. How does this then comfort God's people? Well, I think first it shows God's great care for them. Uh, God will be just to those who harm God's people. Uh, They will not ultimately go unpunished, even if it looks like they may be getting away with it now. But also, I think God reminds them that uh, this is the way he dealt with Edom. Actually, this sentence for them is is true for all people who rebel against God. God is just to punish sin. They should see that they they should see that God has not dealt with them in the way their sins deserve. Rather than I think bemoan their own situation, they should rejoice that God's incredible grace had spared them from what they actually deserve, what they see in Edom. And so, friends, the Bible teaches that you and I are just as deserving of Edom's sentence as they were. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And because of this, Paul can say in Romans Uh, Chapter 1, verse 28. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I think most of us tend to think sin isn't really that bad. God shouldn't take it too seriously. This is where Malachi and Paul here corrects our thinking. Sin is serious. To the Lord. For God to be good, God must be just. He must punish sin for what it really is a rebellion against the Creator, the one who's made us and sustains us. We need a high view of how perfect and holy and just God is, and then we'll be in a better place to not only see the just nature of God's punishment on evil but also the, the wonder and the shock that he choose some to be merciful with. And that brings us to our final point, God's love demonstrated in Christ. Israel could rejoice in God's mercy because God had made a promise to them. He chose them to be his people. But what about us? How are we to avoid the just punishment that we deserve for our lack of love for God. Well, we look no further than Jesus Christ, God's own Son. 
If the Bible has one ultimate climactic answer to the question, does God really love us? It would be contained in the wonder of Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we had no leg to stand on, deserving of God's wrath, no loveliness that should attract God's love, he sent his son to die in our place. <laughs> First John 4, 9-10, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is really the good news of the gospel. That Jesus came to take the punishment that we deserve by dying on a cross, experiencing God's wrath uh, for the sins we've done. So that through him we might live as his very children, free, cleansed, and loved eternally. If you're not a Christian this morning, um, you may have thought, well, there's no way there can be a God, at least not a God who actually loves me. Just look at what's happening in my life. If there was a God who loved me, surely things would be going differently. But I'd submit that the evidence of God's love for you is not your life and your circumstances. The evidence of his love towards you is Jesus' life and Jesus' circumstances that he went through willingly in your place. Mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned, nailed to a cross. And why? Love, tangible, enduring love. God is not like the Father who claims love and then does little to show it. Jesus says, you want to see God's love? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Touch them. Feel them. They were for you. That you might have your sins cleansed and have life unending with me. If you struggle to trust God's love, look at Jesus. Come to him, believing what he's done for you, trusting in his care for you, turning away from your sin, I think the important thing for you is not worrying about whether you are part of God's chosen people. What's important for you is receiving the invitation of Christ who says, Come to me all who are weary or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What will you do with Jesus' invitation? And then for us Christians, when circumstances do cause us to doubt, uh, we look back at what Christ did to experience his love afresh. Romans 8, 28 to 30 that we had read for us earlier says this, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. The point 
the point here is if God always acted for our good, even before we were born, and he will act for our good to bring us to glory with him forever, then will he not also act for our good in the present circumstances? Won't he work things good for us? If we are continuing to believe in Christ, we can know that we are God's chosen. And if we are God's chosen, we can be assured of his covenant love. I have loved you, says the Lord to us this morning. And in Christ, we can respond, yes and amen. I've been asking God to answer one prayer for healing from a medical condition I developed as a child for over 20 years. Still, after these long years of waiting, I can tell you two things with honesty. I trust God. I definitely don't always understand him. Uh, this is the Christian author Anne Swindle describing her experience of wrestling with God's love for her. She says, I trust that God is who he says he is, good, just, merciful. And I trust that Christ's death on the cross was his proving once and for all just how much he loves me and all people. But it's hard to square what I read about Jesus in the Bible with what seems like a lack of help and healing in my own life. I know it wouldn't be hard for him to heal me, but in 20 years he still hasn't done it. And if I'm going to be honest, I have to say that if this is his love towards me, it sure doesn't feel like love. Perhaps we have experienced something similar. We know God loves us. We don't understand always what he's doing. There's a sense in which our call to live by faith and not by sight means that it will be difficult at times to trust in God's love and care for us. But Anne goes on to say, It might not feel like love, but that's because we can't yet see the glory that God chose us for up ahead. But there is a day coming when everything dead will be resurrected. One day we will see it as the love that it is. It will feel like the greatest and best love we've ever experienced, better than the feeling of love that we would choose now if we could. And when it comes, it will feel like the best love we've ever known because it will be. Friends, in Christ, you are so secure because of his hold on you and your life, you might as well be in heaven already. But until that day comes, we can rest assured of his word and the truth of his promises to us. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that before the world was even created, you thought about us, and in your kindness and grace, out of the good pleasure of your own heart, you chose us as your children, even though we did nothing to deserve it. We thank you, Lord, that we can rest in the fact uh, that even when circumstances seem to say otherwise, we can know you love us and you're with us. Lord, we pray you'd give us all greater trust in you and your care for us as we go from here. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.